This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. This story is, it was really difficult to watch on TV last night. I know because Mrs. Brady told me she watched it. And uh, anytime you see a, a web story and it says this story contains graphic images of burned skin, not great. Jackie Lansing's a 73-year-old woman. Uh, she lives north of Toronto in Huntsville. And she went to a drive through at Tim Hortons, got a medium black tea, and she spilled it uh, uh, on herself in May of 22. But she says the cup ended up exploding. Now, we've all had our moments, and I'm sure we've spilled hot beverages on uh, on all of us. As she says, the cup completely collapsed. The tea went onto her stomach and her legs. I'm assuming she's wearing shorts. And again, she'd be a kind of cringe looking at the damage. Oh, which I can't even... <laughs> Yes, I'm looking. I was just looking at it, and I, I'm done. I'm not eating for the rest of the day right. now. And, anyway, it's awful. But you know, this happened with a McDonald a woman through the McDonald's drive-through as well, and she won a lawsuit. It was for- a really famous lawsuit. I think yes. they made a documentary about it. They and, did. And, and this is back in the early '90s, so this is pre, almost pre-internet. It's certainly pre-social media. She was 79 years old. And uh, she sought to settle with McDonald's for 20000 just to cover her medical expenses. McDonald's said, nah, this is all your fault. And then the jury found um, found for her basically compensatory damages to the point of $2.7 million, $2.7 million in punitive damages. So her, she got a hold of a lawyer who upped the ante on this. Listen, if, if indeed this was the, the restaurant's fault, I'm not sure the half million dollars she's suing for is even enough. It, it, but I don't know how you would determine yes. two things. One, they made a bad cup that collapsed on her. And B, there's a lot of parameters. I heard the story on the radio driving when I was listening to Global News at 6. And then I saw the story and I'm reading it now. The struggle is there's a bit of a claim that they made the tea too hot. But I don't know how, why would they make this tea hotter than any other tea That's that it. they make? That's it. So she ordered a medium black tea with two milks. She put it in her cup holder and it was, she, she said it, she says it seemed really hot. Like they hadn't put any milk in it at all. And when she went to see if there was milk in it, the cup collapsed, collapsed and went all over her stomach and her legs. And these pictures are just atrocious. Now, she's suing for $500,000 for damages for pain and suffering, medical costs and other expenses excuse me, related to the injuries. Um, oh, as well as her husband and her sister are 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 claiming 50000 for the loss of guidance, care, and companionship. Okay. Because she just, well, <laughs> well, she just can't live her life. No, but I she's suppose. 73 years old. So we have to take that into consideration as well. I mean, sure, a burn is a burn. Um, I don't know. How do you prove this, that the, the cup collapsed? As opposed to, let's say, negligence on the drivers, on this woman's, she said, and she says the car. I, I think there are two factors here. She said, "I didn't get the right order," so she pulled from the drive-through. We've all done this. Pulled from the drive-through into a parking spot. So it's not like she's uh, rolling down the highway at 115 kilometers and uh, and and tried to you know take a sip of the tea or or open it. Like I'm I'm dri- You can imagine me. I bring my coffee in. I'm driving in the dark. I'm driving that 115 down the DVP uh, within reason. And the last thing I'm doing is grabbing the cup in the dark. I, I, I can't. And I'm not even wearing shorts or short sleeves. I know if I spill it, A, yes, I, I'm going to feel that heat. And I'm a, by the way, I'm a coffee tea drinking person. Like I like it about 
Gordon, I don't know how you like your coffee. I know, she, like, you don't have a lot of hot beverages, Sheba, do you? I have a cup of tea a day. But what, what like, I like it at about a six out of ten for heat. Some people open open up their tea and oh, start I love drinking it. Scalding. A, I'm, I'm, I can't yeah. drink it scalding. I, I, I can't I do a, it. Yeah. I put a lot of milk in it as well, and I warm that up, or I ask them to steam it before adding it to the. Like the lawyer for the woman says, if it's the quote, if it's capable of scalding your body, it's capable of scalding your mouth. But that's how restaurants and and coffee places make it. Yes. They want to give you time for it to cool off. Exactly. I Because if you give it to somebody lukewarm or warm, by the time they finish the cup, it's going to be cold. So this is honestly, if this was like where I got called for jury duty, I'd be like, oh, God, I don't want to deny her her pain and suffering, and I don't know how to prove that the whole company was negligent and they're making bad cups when this like sh- like her argument yesterday was what happens when this burns a child and I'm like well you're as important as a child I don't I don't get like we're talking about you okay hold on though according yeah. to the Tea Association of Canada on their website it says that tea should be prepared at temperatures ranging from 85 degrees Celsius for white and green tea. And 100 degrees Celsius for black and herbal teas. So these are the experts. And it's supposed to steep from between one and six minutes. So if you're a a coffee company or a tea company and you're selling this, that's what you're going to serve your customers at. That's what you're going to serve your customers at. And I don't think if she loses the case, this is me saying this, I don't think Tim Hortons loses one customer and is seen as... Uh, callous and cruel and corporate and all that. Like, I don't see that happening. I'm seeing this story here. A BC woman lost her lawsuit against Starbucks. This was 2017. Um, They burned her legs. She burned her legs with tea. She said the beverage giant served it too hot and the cup collapsed. The judge ruled Starbucks was not liable for the burns. He ruled the woman failed to prove the cup was defective and the beverage was too hot. Same thing. Passenger seat. The two stopped at Starbucks to get a tea and a hot water. The mom drove a short distance. The vehicle comes to a stop. And the woman said the lid popped off, spilling the tea primarily on her bare, I would assume, left thigh. And they treated her at the hospital for second and third degree burns. I don't know how you you got to come with proof in a case like this. And it's it's a really hard case to prove. It's tricky. And we can go all the way back to 1992 when 79-year-old Stella Liebeck uh, sued McDonald's. Mm -hmm. This is the case because this coffee spilled into her lap in pelvic region. And she was awarded 2.9 million U.S. in damages. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. There's, it's, it's a tricky situation. I'd love to hear from somebody who works at, at a, at a coffee shop, at a, at a, at a Tim Hortons, a Starbucks or wherever. And I like, I, again, you're, you're in that workplace with scalding hot water and scalding hot beverages. I don't know that you turn it up and make it even hotter. It's not like the industry is going to regulate and say, you cannot make a beverage any hotter than this temperature. It's not going to happen. You just do what what you think is best. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Will we get to double digit candidates for mayor of Toronto? We've got one with us right now. And um, let's we'll weigh the level of uh, of surprise among you, the electorate listening to the show. But we have uh, from True North Media, Anthony Fury with us. Um, what's your announcement? What, what do you have to say for yourself? What are you doing here? You know, Greg, I'm a father of three young kids committed to raising them in this city. And when a lot of people say Toronto feels like a city in decline, it upsets me because people talk about I'm even taking the kids out of town. People are looking at real estate elsewhere because of safety reasons, because of prices. Seniors coming up to me on the street saying, you know, we used to go downtown for lunch to catch a show two, three times a month. We're just not feeling it anymore. 
not too too expensive. The safety issues are a concern. And I look around at the field of candidates. I look around at the direction the city's heading, and I think we need a fresh perspective. The status quo voices who got us to this place, Greg, are not the people to get us out of it, and that's why I'm running to be mayor of Toronto. You're running to be mayor of Toronto. In the fall, and I guess we'd argue the summer, given we had a municipal campaign, was it on your mind at all? Or did this just get electrified and intensified when uh, John resigned four and a half weeks ago? I think this is a special moment in time, Greg. We are seeing, really in cities all across North America, people are frustrated with the status quo, with the same old voices. Up in Ottawa, we see that there's a city councillor who wanted to become mayor. Instead, the folks said no. There's a newspaper columnist and broadcaster who we're going to appoint to be mayor. Mm -hmm. We're going to vote for him. So I think we're seeing a lot of people say we want a fresh perspective. If you're unhappy with the direction the city is headed in, how can you say that the people who played a role in that decline are the people to fix it now? I don't believe that's the case. That's why I believe a fresh voice is needed, and I'm that voice. So it wasn't as much on your mind in the fall. Had, had you flirted with the idea, even running for city council, had you flirted with elected office in your brain the last couple of years? Sure. I mean, you know, when, when you're in a position such as you and I are in, you're in the media, people chat with you about those things, you, you work in political media, obviously it's always been a consideration, but this is the thing that, that the passion really hit me home. Talking about my three kids, mm -hmm. talking about the affordability issues, people just talking about how their daily lives are really being affected now with affordability, with safety, and really feeling it so acutely and saying, look, I have the privilege to join Greg and John Oakley and everyone and write in the pages of the newspaper every second day about what we should do about it. But it's time to go from talk to action. It's time to put my hat in the ring. We do feel, I, I said this yesterday, uh, Chloe Brown, who finished third in the last race, was on. Um, and uh, I think she's got new ideas. The, the great thing is, I love sitting in a room with somebody who there'd be 20 issues and, and maybe we'll only agree on 10 or 11. It's hard to sit in somebody when you disagree on 18. But what I find we've lost the ability to do in politics is sit in a room, respect the other person. And it used to be the eight or nine issues out of 10, say, that would bring us together and let us have a conversation. And we could really spar about the other one. Now it feels like the 10th issue out of 10 divides us, rips us up. Uh, not only do I not like your idea, I don't like you. I don't like where you come. How do we sort of bring that back to the middle? How can we do that? Well, I think it's the voices we empower and who we put in charge in City Hall. Because right now, Greg, I think that we need to have a conversation about who actually runs this city. Because on the one hand, you've got the lobbyists, the big corporations who think they call the shots. You've got the fringe activists who think all they need to do is show up at City and Hall, kicking and screaming, and City Hall caves to them. And too often, that is what happens. I'm saying enough of that. That's not the way we're going to do things anymore. If I'm mayor, the voices I'm going to put in charge are the hockey moms, the guy stuck on the 401 all day, the small and medium businesses who have taken a beating the past few years. Those are the voices I'm going to elevate. Those are the voices I'm going to put in charge. What did John do well and where did he struggle? What frustrated you and, and where would you give him his kudos? I think people want to see continuity on economic development. They want to see continuity on transit. Right now, you're going to hear from all these candidates who say, we can't build an entire subway line because of two trees. They're going to say, we need to tear down the gardener. They want to relitigate that. Enough of that. There's some who've already been flirting with road tolls on the gardener and the DVP. Enough, enough, enough. Leave people alone. Things have gone too far in terms of just pushing people in all these issues. You want to talk about bike lanes? We're all reasonable people here. We can talk about bike lanes. Fine. No more of the concrete block ones. You've got the ambulances complaining about that sort of stuff. 
Um, so let me come back to John. What, what, where did he struggle? What, why? I, I think there was a little bit of an awakening. Were we numb in the fall when we, when 62% of only a 30% turnout come out and vote for John Tory? A lot of the big names that are getting into the race didn't want to get in against John Tory, and they're getting in now. Some are, are saying that reeks of opportunism because you don't have to slay the dragon. Where, where was the struggle for John Tory to do it. Cause we're, if we're in this much trouble, then it couldn't have been as great an, an idealistic um, ideal, like eight and a half years with John Tory. Like some people think it was. Like I said, I think there's the impression a lot of people have that the lobbyists, the big corporations are running the show as well as the fringe activists. And you have to reset that. And I think the tone has been in place the past few years that those are the people who are elevated. Those are the people who have the ear of mayor of council of city staff and enough of that. You got to put the regular folks back in charge. Anthony Fury is our guest. He is running for mayor of Toronto. The election is June 26th. He puts his papers in on uh, April 3rd. When did you settle on this decision? How long ago? A few weeks ago, having those conversations, realizing we need a fresh perspective, people looking around and saying, we don't just want someone who's one of those perennial candidates, to your point, an opportunist who's running for whatever comes up, someone who's saying, I'm passionate about this moment. I'm genuine about these issues. This is about families. This is about me and my three kids saying I'm committed to this city for the long haul. You know what? I had a great youth growing up in this city. Loved it. I love Toronto. I want to have those same opportunities for my kids. And when you talk about the city being less affordable, less safe, it really worries me on that front. And I want to be a part of the change. I'm that dad with a 17-year-old right now, and we're joking around the house all the time. Please don't let our son want to go to a great institution like University of Toronto because of the cost. And I'm like, I'm walking around my house going, how can I do that to him? How can, this isn't even about home ownership. This isn't even about being able to afford to use sports. We do okay as a family, but why am I trying to tell him to go to school in the Maritimes or in Alberta just for the cost of living? I'm like, hey, I'll give you the extra money that's saved. I think there's a lot of parents having those conversations. And you're right. The data shows there's a flight. There's a flight out of Toronto. And it's not because it's not near cool things and cool restaurants and sports events. It's cost. It's cost of living, cost of living, cost of living. Might Might be a bit of safety too, but it's all those things. So first of all, you mentioned sports. User fees going up, that is not acceptable on any front. Recreation, whatever it is. And you're going to hear some candidates talk about this this great euphemism called revenue tools. What they actually mean is hosing folks even more, increasing costs for people more. Enough of that. One of the things I'm pledging to do is a 90-day review. As soon as I get into office, we take a look at everything the city's doing. And if it's not laser-focused on delivering the services that residents and taxpayers expect on, bye-bye, we're done with it. So when we talk about things like renaming Dundas Street, well, that takes time. That takes money. I can't believe there are still sunken costs into bizarre pet projects like this. You may have seen there's this odd shrine to Dr. Eileen DeVilla's scarf that is at City Hall right now. I knew you'd that, like that one. <laughs> that costs money. That takes time. Where are the priorities? That is just inappropriate. So we need someone who comes in who is not a part of the status quo because they also need to manage city staff. And right now, city staff is managing all these Mm. counselors. And that's not the appropriate relationship because you need to get in, you need to do that review, Mm. and you need to say, what are our priorities? And bye-bye to those things that are wasting taxpayer resources. Anthony Fury is in studio with us. You often hear him on uh, the Oakley Show and all over our uh, radio station as well. Here's what people are going to say to you as well. Are they going to describe you? Do you delineate between... 
left and right, liberal and conservative? Do you uh, people will call uh, where you work True North? Will will they call it an alt right website? What is alt right anymore? What's even left and right anymore? I think the lines are blurring a little bit. How would you say what your principles and and your political philosophies are? Well, I think the term is center right for the publications I've worked for and, and the voice that I generally articulate. But at the bottom line. Uh, Greg, you know, it is true that at the municipal level, you have the ability to build different alliances because there's not a party system and a lot of ideas that do transcend uh, traditional partisan politics because this is our daily lives here. So when we're talking about uh, clean streets, safe streets, garbage collection, so many basic services that we rely on, uh, transit. And I'm going to have some big announcements in the weeks ahead. I promise you, Greg, big announcements about delivering on these things, delivering services uh, for taxpayers, for residents delivering on the things that people rely on. These are things that are not partisan at all. These are things that are about getting the job done, getting core services done, managing City Hall, bringing that fresh perspective. So I'm talking with people from all across the spectrum. I'm putting out my advisory committee list, and you will see that there are people who are who are not conservative on it, many conservatives on it, but there's some liberals too, former liberal MPs. So I, I'm talking to people all across the spectrum, and I, I welcome uh, the input and advice from people from all different perspectives. If someone said to you, is Toronto a safe city, and they didn't know it very well, or they only came here a couple times a year, what would you say to them now? Wow, yeah, that's a really upsetting question. What, what what I would say to them is I want to be mayor, and I want tourism, I want visitors, I want everyone coming here. So yes, Toronto is a safe city. And then in the background, oh boy, I would be working hard to make it a safe city, because we know there are these concerns. One of the big things that is not being talked about enough, Greg, and I've been talking to street doctors who work with people on the street. I've been talking to parents of uh, young people who are stuck in the opioid crisis. These random attacks that we're seeing, the violence we're seeing on our streets, a lot of this has to do with the drug crisis. There are people who are committing six, seven, eight crimes a day because of their unfortunate situation. And a compassionate society does not keep people on drugs. A compassionate society gets them off of drugs. And it's time for Toronto to do what so many other jurisdictions are now doing, Greg, which is a laser focus on treatment, treatment, treatment. You know, we just announced two new plans for safe injection sites coming up soon. They're not open yet, but they were just announced the other week by Deputy Mayor McKelvey. These people are committed to making sure that people do not die of an overdose. That's great, but what comes next after that? Treatment, treatment, treatment is the missing puzzle for Toronto. We're not doing it to the same degree they're doing it in BC with their NDP government, Alberta with their conservative government. It's a nonpartisan issue. And I think when you want to talk about people coming together, regardless of political perspectives, I'm going to be the mayor who advocates for treatment, treatment, treatment. And by helping our brothers and sisters on the street who are hurting, we help ourselves. We clean up our own streets. We get rid of those random attacks and violence. Is it a bit of a jigsaw puzzle in that you increase treatment, you make people better, um, there's less homelessness. Less homelessness means there's not going to be, you know, illegal encampments in parks. No illegal encampments in parks means people are going to feel safer, whether they're tangibly safer or not. Like, Greg, this, I this is all a jigsaw puzzle here that, that with the different pieces. Absolutely. I was speaking to a West Queen West business owner the other day. A lot of concerns about Trinity Bellwoods Park, how they had the encampments, saying, what percentage of people there were unfortunately dealing with a drug issue? Police officers were telling me, business owners were telling me, it is a very high percentage. So you are right. Primarily what we have is a drug crisis problem, an opioid crisis problem, and these are people who need our help. These are people who are in an unfortunate situation, and we got to rally behind our brothers and sisters on the street because it's good for them and it's good for us. It will clean up our city. 
I just look and I think uh, an addict, what defines an addict? Probably desperation. I'll do whatever I can, whenever I can to get the, the drug I need. So what will they do? They will they will break laws. Um, they will they will do what they can to support their drug habits. And if this was one of your kids, if this was one of my kids, we'd exhibit every measure of tough love that we could. So you're right. I, I hear on this show and I'm sure you'll hear from voters Parents saying, I-, I wouldn't want that to be my kid. and But not everybody's got the same support system the Fury or the Brady household has. So what are we doing for those people? Very yeah. little right now. Yeah, I-, I lived in a condo right near Moss Park. We now live in the East End. I wrote a column in 2018 that people still talk about now where I said goodbye to downtown living. And here's why. Just too many incidents walking the kids around in the stroller and, and brushing up against people who are in crisis. But also during those experiences, we really saw the humanity in those people. Those people do not want to mm-hmm. be in their situation. Street doctors have told me that when you sit down, make the human connection with these individuals and say, can we get you in the pathway to treatment? They want to head in that direction. Anthony Fury is our guest in studio with us on Toronto Today. Um, Property tax. It was finally raised. How much would it have been raised had we not have a pandemic? It's inconsequential. We had a pandemic and this is our reality. Um, What would you do there? Do you like the, the rate it was raised to? Would you raise it further? Would you promise to lower it? What would you do? Yeah, at or below inflation, absolutely, because people are being hammered, they are being hit. You're going to hear from the other guys the talk of revenue tools, that facetious term. I don't buy it, full stop, reject it in terms of increase to fees, tolls on the Gardner DVP. Some people have been talking about that. It is not on. I'm doing a 90-day review that starts the day I become mayor. We're looking at all city services, and if things are not laser-focused on delivering core services that taxpayers rely on, Bye-bye, we're getting rid of it. Renaming Dundas Street pilot projects, that costs money. The shrine to Dr. Mm-hmm. Eileen DeVilla's scarf, that costs money. We're doing away with all of that stuff. Um, tell me about debates. Um, there weren't enough last time out. Um, John I'll Tory, talk to anyone, only, anytime. <laughs> that Queen West business owner knows it. You're headed back there later it. today uh, for bagels. Give me a sense as to, as to sort of what you think the biggest issues are. Sometimes, I watch this with the provincial election. I watched, um, I thought Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath just chased their tails trying to pin Doug Ford down on issues. We don't have an incumbent right now. And that could be a good thing for open conversation in the next three months. And here is the biggest issue that the status quo people who got us to this situation are not the people to get us out of it. So you're going to hear from a lot of people, I'd like to do this and that. Well, why didn't you do it in the previous years? Why didn't you, who have basically managed the decline of this city right now, why didn't you do that stuff back then? Because you caved to the activists, because you were more interested in listening to the lobbyists and the big corporations, and you were the small and medium businesses and the regular folks. That's the conversation we need to have. Who really runs this city? And let's get fresh voices in. Um, You and I talked a lot about, um, well, everybody's COVID response, the planets, the countries, the provinces, the cities. Are there lessons to be learned there? Are these election issues? We all say, well, we need to know what we're doing for the next pandemic. And in Europe, they seem to be taking inventory. What do we get right? What we get wrong? I don't see it here in North. I don't see it in North America. So I can't just blame Canada. I don't see it in the States either. Is this an election issue to talk about the things we did or didn't do? Because we're all I think Toronto was one of the most locked down cities on the planet. We closed the outdoors. You and I talked a lot about that in the spring of 21. Um, are there lessons to be learned and can we apply them to, to how we handle this election campaign? I think we can. I think a lot of people now acknowledge that on a number of fronts, Greg, we just went a little bit too far. To your point, Toronto, compared to so many jurisdictions around the world, was one of the most restricted, one of the most locked down. 
telling small businesses, telling restaurants, okay, you'll be able to open your patios in, in the late winter the other year. Oh. oh, no, actually, we've retracted that. We've rescinded that. That was clearly a mistake. And when it comes to going too far, I think that's how people feel about a lot of things. People of all political backgrounds, nonpartisan, we've just gone too far when, when it comes to talking about tearing down the garden or gone too far when, it, when, when we talk about safety issues on our street, not addressing them gone too far when it comes to bike lanes with those concrete blocks on every street. Get rid of the concrete blocks. We can talk about a few more bike lanes here and there on appropriate streets. No more of the concrete blocks, that sort of stuff. We've just pushed too far on some of these things. We did that on COVID as well. We actually need to be more moderate on so many of these issues. i got a couple of minutes left. How do we, how do we um, get more funding from the province and uh, the prime minister? The great thing is you've been very um, vocal and opinionated, but also educated maybe, you know, to a greater extent than the average candidate that's going to run about these provincial and federal issues. They're, politics is a passion of yours. Anybody that met you for five minutes would know that. How do you work with a Doug Ford? How do you work with a Justin Trudeau? Well, you do. You sit down and you acknowledge that we all want what's best for Toronto because they know we're an economic engine. We know that every year out of the 500,000 or so uh, new people coming to Canada, a large chunk of that is coming here into the GTA, into Toronto. You have to manage those resources. And that's a joint conversation between all three levels of government. And look, I, I've had a lot of fun over the years on radio and television, uh, taking shots at different politicians, but we all know no. how it works. They know what's going on there. <laughs> they also know that we can sit down and have that respectful conversation. And that's what we're going to do because we got to be partners in all of this. And, and people want levels of government to work together. But at the same time, I can't be a person who says, all right, well, don't make waves here and there, smooth things over. No, ultimately, it's got to be about standing up for the residents and taxpayers of Toronto and speaking up for them, fighting for them. Right now, there's too much, oh, don't make waves, mm. don't make questions about this here. Uh, we got to appease these lobbyists and these special interests, these activists, these big corporations. No, it's primarily laser-focused on the regular folks. Thanks for choosing our show to make your announcement. I know you're going to be busy today. I know this is a tremendous endeavor. I admire anybody uh, that throws their hat in the ring um, for such an important job. Um, and I know we'll be talking lots in the next three months. Greg, I'm very passionate about doing this. I'm going to be meeting people all across the city, all walks of life. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to be on the ballot on June 2023. How do uh, uh, website up right now or www.fury.ca. Please check out my announcement video. Uh, sign up to learn more. Very excited to get out and chat with people and just grow the team. Let's make this a movement about having a conversation about who really runs this city, putting the regular folks back in charge. Anthony Fury with us on Toronto today. All right. Safe uh, rest of the day. Thanks, and uh, and uh, hopefully you'll be home for dinner tonight. You got it. Anthony Fury uh, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. He's uh, won the last four times out running for uh, city council, including an overwhelming mandate last fall in War 12. And he will announce his run for mayor today. He is Josh Matlow. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for doing this. We've had lots of conversations this fall uh, since you were reelected. We've had a few conversations since John Tory resigned. What brought you to this decision today, Josh? It's always a pleasure to be with you, Greg. Um, well, you know, I've seen, as I believe most Torontonians have seen, our city decline in ways that we know aren't acceptable. Uh, and everything from the way that our snow isn't cleared on time, the garbage bins are overflowing on our main streets, uh, the, the public bathrooms in our parks aren't reliable, our subways and buses are now facing more delays. Um, and, you know, as a parent, trying to even get my kid into a rec program at a community centre is like, is like going to an Olympic event. Um, 
And people are feeling less safe. Uh, the city is less affordable. And I want to return Toronto to become a city that works. Um, we need to be upfront about how to do that. We need to get real about how to invest in our priorities. And I've just seen, you know, the, the last two mayors and, and others uh, pretend that Doug Ford is going to come to our rescue and bail us out or upload our highways or do things that they've already said they're not going to do. Uh, so that's why I'm dedicated to uh, create what, uh, what we're going to be calling the City Works Fund. And what this fund is going to do is be an upfront, realistic investment fund to go toward our city's priorities that are declining today. Uh, it's based on uh, a 2% property tax that will essentially come down to $67 for the average homeowner per year, which really comes down to $5.55 per month, the price of a sandwich, so that we don't have the status quo. And what you know, I think it's important to be upfront about not only what you want to do and what you want to fix, but also how you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm that's why I'm being upfront, you know, day one of this campaign to uh, both say, let's let's move forward, let's actually fix our problems. Uh, we have an enormous uh, enormous hole in our budget at the city of Toronto, and we need to start reinvesting in things that uh, we care about for a city that works. So you may have listeners saying your first statement on the show announcing your running for mayor is to also pledge uh, a tax increase. Yes. How, how would, and, and that's just inevitable. We, we You got to pay to play. Is that how you view it? Well, yeah. I mean, you get what you pay for. And I know that it's a risk to announce that as part of a mayoral campaign. What The reason that we're in the trouble that we're in The reason that we see the services decline, the infrastructure crumble, the roads aren't getting repaired is because the last two mayors pretended that we didn't need to invest in these services. Not only did we not invest in these services, but our budget is a mess. We are facing billions and billions of dollars of problems and no real way to get out of that hole. Um, Some are suggesting that Doug Ford is going to come to a rescue, but that has not materialized. So I believe we need to take care of our own house. Now, of course, I'm going to be advocating, as I always have, for a new deal for Toronto. I believe that there needs to be a different arrangement with the provincial government. But I also can't, nor can any of us, wait for the provincial government to bail us out. We need to start fixing our services, fixing our infrastructure, uh, because we want to return Toronto to be a city that works and it just hasn't been working well enough for too many people and that's not acceptable josh matlow's our guest on toronto today he announces this morning he's running for mayor on 640 toronto on toronto today um so eight nine months ago we're heading into a municipal election campaign and john tory says i'm going to run for a third term everything you laid out you also know eight nine months ago and you also know no one's going to beat john tory in that election you must have had people come to you and said josh you can beat John Tory. Josh, you can change things around. You also know John's advocating and pushing through these strong mayor powers. It must have taken a lot to compel you not to run. How close were you to running? And and do you feel even a tinge of regret that you didn't last fall? Not at all. I mean, it wasn't the right time in my life uh, to run for mayor. And quite frankly, uh, when John Tory uh, dropped the bombshell that he was going to resign, Um, You know, my wife and my 10-year-old daughter and I needed to have a conversation about how this would affect our life and, uh, you know, how we would manage things. But what we decided was that um, we care about the city. We know what's not working. 
I have a very clear vision for how to address our problems. Uh, but I'm also still going to walk my kid to school sometimes. And, I'm, you know, we want to have dinner together sometimes. And, you know, we're not going to sacrifice our family life. But at the same time, uh, they, they support me uh, running for mayor. Uh, my daughter, by the way, now that I've announced, she can't wait to go to school this morning to tell her friends. So, you know, I think, <laughs> I think it'll be a really exciting day for all of us. And ultimately, um, you know, the community that I've served along with Trontonians across the city who, are, who I've worked with in their neighborhoods um, are being very supportive. So I'm, I'm very excited about uh, the, the path ahead. What does a mayor Matlow do with the strong mayor powers that John Tory sought out, advocated for, and, and you and others were quite critical of because they were undemocratic? What do you do with them? My position remains the same and consistent. Uh, a, a minority rule is not democratic. Uh, the majority rules, the minority is heard. And there is no legislative body democratically elected in the world that uh, makes decisions based on what the minority of members uh, have to say. So um, uh, not only would I disavow using that power, but I would be asking the provincial government to rescind it. All right. I, like, I just believe that a mayor can be strong by the work that they do and the actions that they take. It, it shouldn't take uh, you know, the name of legislation to make them strong. You've you've noted we're facing a lot of crises at the same time. Um, does it take putting all the jigsaw piece uh, pieces together and fixing them all gradually, or do we have to stack them on top of each other and say this is priority A, this is priority B, this is priority C? We have a number of priorities that we need to focus on simultaneously. We're in the midst of a housing crisis, a climate crisis, uh, and a financial crisis. Uh, there are too many people who are left vulnerable on our streets that we need to take care of and make sure that we lift up our communities. That affects us all. We want safe and healthy neighborhoods. So all of this needs to be dealt with. And listen, I recognize that, uh, uh, you know, if, if the people of Toronto choose me, uh, you know, the, the, the day after the election, um, there are significant challenges to face. I understand them, though. Mm-hmm. I am very focused on our priorities, and I will stop at nothing to uh, ensure that our city doesn't continue uh, declining in services, seeing our infrastructure, our roads continue to erode. Uh, and I, my job will be to make sure that the city returns to be a city that works. And that's going to be my focus every single day. Josh Mallow, our guest on 640 Toronto. All right, you've been outspoken on, on the Gardner Expressway. I think people want to know, do you just want to stop what's happening, uh, Gardner East, with the teardown, or do you want to take the Gardner down eventually all on its own? I, I, I put a, a note out on Twitter about it Friday. I couldn't no. believe the overwhelming response. People saying it's a wall, it, it prevents our waterfront from developing, it walls off a beautiful area of our city. What do you do with it in the long term? So uh, to be very clear... The debate that we're having about the gardener is the section of the gardener, the least used section of the gardener, east of Jarvis. And the decision is, do we continue to pour hundreds of millions of dollars, which we don't have, Mm -hmm. into being the only city in the world that might rebuild a section of an elevated expressway along their waterfront? Or do we put it on the ground, where not only is it a lot cheaper to do that, but we also save the next 100 years of maintenance costs, and uh, open up lands that can bring in roughly a a half a billion dollars in revenue to the city, which we need to invest in our our priorities, along with build new housing as we're in the midst of a housing crisis. Again, I just want us to get real. Uh, You know, in my household, 
when we don't have enough money for things, we have to make hard decisions. We invest in our priorities. I believe most people live that way if they're responsible. Our city has not been doing that under the last two mayors well enough. And my job will be to actually focus back on our priorities. And yes, make some difficult decisions. Uh, but, but you know, the ones that are based on evidence rather than rhetoric. Josh Matlow is our guest. I know um, you and I have had conversations about um, the police and their value. The one thing I've noticed a lot, Josh, the last three months, we've had all these terrible, violent incidents. We've had them on the streets, but we've also had them um, on the TTC um, and with the horrible incident in the summer. What I'm noticing is um, Toronto Police Services are catching these criminals. They are like they they've got a very strong efficiency rate. You put forward a motion three years ago to defund the police by 10 percent. Where do you go with funding the police? What is their value? How can you reshape the police and their relationship to the city? Well, a priority is, I believe, to rein in spending when it comes to the top line item in the entire budget. The police budget is $1.1 billion. And while you know, I, I want a police service that can get the job done, but I also don't believe that we've invested well enough in the proactive actions that need to be taken to ensure that our youth have real opportunities rather than go down the wrong path, uh, are able to live healthy and safe lives, which also uh, contribute to healthy and safe communities. I want to make sure that those initiatives and programs are invested in, that there's benchmarks for success, and that we take meaningful actions the way that were you know, recommended 10 years ago in the Roots of Youth Violence Report, for example, uh, that governments have not actually acted on. So that's where I want to start investing more money, because, frankly, if you actually address the problem at, it, at its roots, you don't need to spend as much money as we are today reacting to it. Here's what I here's what I, I will back you and every other candidate on, to be perfectly honest, is the idea that crime is not just a municipal issue. It is a provincial issue. It is a federal issue. I'd love to know, Josh, where are the MPPs? Where are the MPs in certain ridings? When something goes awry in Oshawa, the instant reaction is, well, let's talk to some Oshawa councillors or some Oshawa mayors or Scarborough Scarborough councillors. Where are the MPs and MPPs? Like we all that's the one thing we should all be unionized on, if you will, is preventing crime and making sure criminals yeah. actually don't get back on the streets that that early. I, I hear you. And, you know, many, many, many of these laws uh, are within the purview of the federal and provincial governments. It's, it's not municipal, but we are affected mm -hmm. uh, uh, by their decisions on the ground. Uh, but also, you know, when it comes to mental health, for example, that really we need the province to step up because I know middle to upper middle class uh, uh, Torontonians who struggle with the mental health care system to navigate it, to get access to the care they need. Imagine if you are, uh, you know, somebody who's, you know, in our neighborhoods, you are a youth at risk. Um, you, you don't know who to turn to. Often, you know, you've, you've, got a, you've got people who say, turn to us and we're taking you down the wrong path. That affects their life, their safety, their well-being, and that affects us all. So we need the province to step up on their responsibilities and we need to make sure that we, you know, we have resilient and healthy communities. If we do that, if we work with other levels of government to achieve that, um, the evidence is just so clear that we won't have to react as much. I mean, I would rather, yes, mm. we have to arrest criminals, but I would rather prevent somebody from becoming a victim in the first place. And, by, and the way to do that is address the root causes of, of violence in our society, whether it be mental health, uh, racism, poverty, access to housing. We need to address those problems. 
I know you've got a lot of people in your corner. I know you've got a lot of people that think your priorities are right where they should be uh, for this city, um, including your daughter. Um, I know she's not old <laughs> enough to vote. I n- not yet. Um, That's true. That's thank you very much for the time. I know we'll be chatting lots of the next three months and good luck. I look forward to it, Greg. Thank you so much. Josh Matlow joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. And two big developments on the TTC really in the last week or so, just in case you were away on March break. Um, they released um, numbers of, of violent offenses and they have dipped in uh, in January uh, compared to December. Offenses were up in 22 from 21. But I need you to remember, we were pretty closed up still in January and February um, in Toronto, and there wasn't a lot of things happening in the in the downtown core, and workplaces weren't back open, and schools were closed for a couple weeks. So I don't know the year on year. It's the data matters, but I don't know that the year on year is a fair comparison. And then if you missed it as well, Toronto police uh, noted they won't deploy their overtime officers anymore to patrol the TTC. Um, a fascinating piece in the Toronto Star uh, by our next guest. She traveled to Philadelphia to check out the situation there. With um, with they're, they're they're facing everything that we are. So's New York. So's Chicago with public transit. And she makes a great point in the story. Um, it's a make or break moment for many public transit systems. So she wanted to see what was happening in Philadelphia. Lex Harvey joins us from the Toronto Star. I, I loved your your story. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Absolutely. What what were some of the initial things you spotted in Philadelphia that either reminded you of Toronto or, or set Toronto apart that were different? Yeah, so I think, as you mentioned before, a lot of the challenges that Toronto is seeing um, are things that are mirrored across North America. So we're talking about rising crime, uh, lower ridership, and then also the the growing number of people who are turning to public transit systems for shelter. And so... My reason for going to Philly is that they are seeing a lot of these things as well, but their program to respond to this really um, stood out to me because it was quite a comprehensive approach, I think, compared to what we have here. And it was also quite focused on um, social workers and helping what they call the crisis of vulnerable populations on their system. As compared to other cities, I was also in New York later in the week, Mm. which is an example of a place that has really flooded their system uh, with police in response to these issues. So I I felt that this really kind of went against the grain to me. Um, And I think people would be under the impression um, it's America. They're a little more law and order on violent crime. They're harsher with with convictions and sentencing. And that's probably true. But it hasn't stopped. It doesn't seem to have stopped a lot of violence on on Philadelphia's system. You note five murders in 2020 compared to one in 2019. Again, people probably um, were riding the train less because of of covid restrictions and uh, and aggravated assaults were up 141 in 2022 from 2018. So. Whatever the situation, they're experiencing more violence similar to what we are. Yeah, they're definitely experiencing more violence. And they also are starting from a different baseline, which is, of course, important to acknowledge here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had more than 500 homicides in 2022, whereas in Toronto, we had 17. Um, you know, it's a city that struggles with a really high poverty rate, uh, really high overdose death rate. Um, so that was something I did also notice is just the level, I think, of Drug use on the system and challenges around that are not something that um, we see as much in Toronto. Uh, but that said, I think a lot of their their ways of tackling this definitely do have relevance for us. You you note that um, that there's a, in essence a more um, you you describe it as hopeful and humane way that Philadelphia is 
attempting to solve a lot of their issues that, that are interconnected, whether it's homelessness, violence, um, open drug use. What are you spotting that, that, that we could even take and package up and, and do more of in Toronto? Yeah, so they really grouped a lot of these issues together in a way that feels compassionate to me. I think that something that we have to be really careful of here is not scapegoating any individual group. We don't really have data that suggests, for example, that homeless people are, are behind these crimes. Mm-hmm. But I think when you're considering safety, when you're considering ridership and cleanliness, um, you know, these are all kinds of challenges that, that really do sway people from riding public transit. Um, but I feel like Philly's approach here, you know, appropriately acknowledges like, listen, you know, we are not suggesting that homeless people are um, are causing these crimes. I think more likely they're actually victims of these crimes. And so I think that they have done it in a compassionate way, but focusing on, um, you know, what, what services can we offer people who are struggling? So rather than necessarily only having police who can just enforce laws, why don't we have social workers who can refer people to treatment for addiction that they might be struggling with or who can help people get into shelters or even just give people a a snack or or just have someone to be there to talk to. And so um, that's really been the cornerstone of their response to this. Lex Harvey is joining us from the Toronto Star. Uh, She wrote about going to Philadelphia um, and seeing what their public transit was like as a contrast to ours. And and you may, yeah, you make the point that Philadelphia has attempted a more hybrid approach, a balanced approach. Yes, there's a greater police presence, but there's social workers as well to sort of balance things out. Not that police can't be compassionate, not that social workers wouldn't even advocate tough love for some of these issues, but they seem to be working more in concert and in tandem than anything that Toronto's approached yet. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of it, too, is is sometimes just the police uniform um, can create a situation where someone maybe isn't as likely to seek help. When I was riding the system there with outreach workers, um, you know, we were chatting with a man who was quite honest about his challenges. He said he was heading uh, to a neighborhood in in Philadelphia to go buy drugs. Um, You know, he was going to sell some things he had shoplifted and Mm. he had a couple outstanding warrants. So I think that like people are going through a lot of different challenges and sometimes police aren't always best positioned to handle some of these challenges or there might not be that same level of comfortability when you're dealing with someone, um, you know, who's in a, a neon yellow vest versus a police uniform. Um, before you go, you, you write on transit uh, frequently. How much of an election issue? We've got this um, strange uh, new opportunity here. It's a very unique circumstance to have a mayoral by-election all through the spring. Um, how much of an issue do you think transit will be amongst the candidates? Sometimes it, it gets lost in the ether. I don't think transit was discussed very much in the last mayoral election. How? But we've talked about it a lot. It's had a lot more of a glaring spotlight on it in the last yeah. four or five months than, than it did last summer in the spring. For sure. Well, I mean, I'm I'm probably a little bit biased here because I cover transportation. So I think this is hugely important. Um, but, you know, on top of concerns around crime and safety, um, as well as concerns about ridership and the huge financial impact that has, um, not just for the TTC, but for the city as a whole. Uh, some of the other things that we've seen in the past couple months that I think voters um, will be concerned about our cuts to service. We're also seeing a 10 cent hike in fares, and that is something that um, it, it is due to lower ridership figures and lower revenues. And so I think that there are a multitude of issues here that will factor into this election. I know that um, you know some of the candidates have already said, I'm, I'm going to reverse these cuts and things like that. So I'll be really interested to follow that as well. 
I appreciate the time, Lex. Thanks so much. I thought it was great journalism and appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thanks again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Lex Harvey joining us from uh, the Toronto Star.